Most of us live nowhere near where our food comes from, which means the food that we have access to is controlled by considerations like, does it transport well? And does it have a long shelf life? And modern supply chains also give rise to sprawling monocrops, pesticide overusage, agricultural runoff, biodiversity loss, and a range of other problems. But this all might be changing in the near future with urban farming. That's what I discuss in the following conversation with plant biologist Viviana Correa Galvis, who's a team lead at InFarm, one of Europe's largest urban agricultural companies. The idea behind urban farming is pretty simple. We can return vast amounts of agricultural land to nature by bringing food production back into the cities and stacking crops vertically and densely in controlled environments. Controlled environments are interesting because they allow us to decide which cultivars we want to grow and it also allows us to control things like power usage, water consumption and runoff. We can even control things like plant size, how fast plants grow, color, flavor and nutritional value all without altering their genetic profile. I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens podcast. These conversations are supported by the Andrew von Brown Foundation. If you enjoy what I'm doing and want to help me spread this content, you can do so by liking, sharing, and subscribing. And now, here's Viviana Correa Galvis. I hope you enjoy. Escape Sapiens. I'm going to start off somewhere quite basic. Mm-hmm. So just to start off with... What is urban farming and what is vertical farming? Yeah, um, urban farming is something that has been happening a lot and for a long time ago. Uh, we can start uh, very early on uh, in Egypt, for example. So there are, we, are, we know that um, uh, Asian civilizations just grew crops near um, settlements uh, that happened in Egypt, that happened in the Aztecs, in China. Um, where crops were grown closer to the people that were consuming them in uh, the earliest urban centers. That's what we can call urban farming. Also, the origins of hydroponic growth was uh, is found in those uh, settlements already. And then, uh, yeah, throughout history, you know, in, in the Middle Ages, people also grew crops inside their earlier cities. So that's already urban farming. Um, I guess uh, through time, the model of how we produce food and where we produce food changed and it moved from having the food produced close to where it's consumed to be produced somewhere else and be transported into cities. Um, And that's kind of like the the, the disconnect throughout history of what urban farming was. And um, maybe to jump to our current time, so urban farming kind of became the essence of what we call now vertical farming is the same principle in essence. So you want to have locally grown food. Uh, Mm. Locally grown means uh, closer to whoever is consuming. And we have uh, our population lives mostly in urban areas. So the idea was then to bring back the growing uh, that was happening outside growing areas uh, far away from the cities into the cities. And uh, vertical farming is um, an adaptation of urban farming, uh, you can call it a new version of urban farming, in which um, there is still a lot of uh, broad definitions of it. But basically, you grow plants in a controlled environment Mm -hmm. um, using LEDs illumination, so artificial lighting. Um, how you bring this def- the nutrition to the crops varies depending on the system, but basically it's an indoor growing system in which you could grow plants um, with artificial lighting, controlled conditions, and this 
growing centers are located nearby or very or inside the cities, as for example here in New Farm in Berlin. Mm. But so urban farm, the, the vertical farming aspect is relatively new, where you're yes. indoors and you're you're stacking plants on top yes, of each yes, other. Yes. I, you know, I just recently started seeing this in cafes yes. and supermarkets. Uh, why is this happening now? Is there some new technology that's come in or there's some economic shift or is it for environmental reasons? Why, why does it seem to be that I'm seeing this more today? Yeah. Um, it happens for different, different factors came together. So uh, first of all, there is an awareness of, in general, that we need to change the way how we grow our food. Mm. Uh, this is one idea that in general had happened. Uh, next to it, there was uh, there is a very known professor that kind of pushed the whole movement, which is uh, Dixon de Pommier. He wrote a book about uh, the vertical farm and kind of pushed this idea of having growing centers inside the city. Um, so that's the the idea was already there in the last couple of years, but I, I have to say that the m most striking change that could really make this possible was the, the development of LED technologies, okay. because we've been growing plants with artificial lighting for years. Greenhouses have been using artificial light uh, to complement sol um, sunlight for years, uh, even mm -hmm. from the 70s, 60s. Uh, greenhouses do that, in, for example, in winter to compensate the lacks of our uh, light hours. But only until really artificial lighting became cheaper and accessible. That mm -hmm. was kind of the push that we needed. And um, also the available technologies that we have nowadays. We have the technology to have a control uh, system. We, can have we have the technology to have an AI uh, environmental control system nowadays uh, so it's it's a couple of factors that just came together to give birth to vertical farming so it's sort of economically viable these days yes, because yeah. the, okay is, is what are the main so people sort of say that vertical farming is going to be good for the environment in certain ways so what are the main is this also like a big factor what are the main sort of environmental yes. benefits i guess yeah there are many factors um i mean one factor for sure is the fact that you are cutting off supply chain mm -hmm. a lot so having the plants growing close to the supermarkets in close to urban centers uh, really um, decreases the amount of resources that you would require mm -hmm. to transport food very far away if you think about it um, I read the other day that about 24% of the food that we consume is actually, or that we produce, is lost on the way. Okay. Because <laughs> it, it's damaged throughout the supply chain. If you think about if you want to have uh, some um, rosemary for your potatoes, mm -hmm. that rosemary to, uh, to Berlin used to be imported from Morocco. That's really, mm -hmm. uh, like, if you imagine a plane with pieces of rosemary leaves flying back to Berlin. So uh, with with, farm, with vertical farming, we can really uh, have that um, shortened supply chain, and that changes quite a lot the impact that we do that we have in terms of uh, CO2 emissions with transporting food, the efficiency at which we can actually use all the food that we produce increases mm -hmm. on one side. The other um, main point is that uh, we grow the plants in a very controlled environment system. So meaning that we have the possibility to optimize the resource efficiency of, of the system. Mm -hmm. We can reduce the water consumption significantly. So about 90% of the water that we um, will produce to, pr to, that we will use to produce foods will be reduced 
so we have less water consumption, significantly less water consumption in food production. We will also um, can uh, optimize the harvesting cycles in a way that we get with as less energy as possible the main uh, the same amount of food. Mm-hmm. So basically, those are the main uh, issues. Is there? So I hadn't thought about this actually. So you're using LEDs and not sunlight primar- exclusively, right? Yes. So. It, how, is that offset by the transport savings? As in, is less power overall used, even though you still have to use LEDs? Mm, yeah, there is um, still not a very well um, knowledge on, on, on how much this compensates. But it's indeed one of the things that uh, we can do. Like, even though we use artificial lighting, we can actually optimize how much light we need. So mm-hmm. we can optimize the use of it. If you think about plants in nature, they don't really use all the sunlight that they receive. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the energy is being quenched, is lost, because uh, there are downstream processes in plant metabolism that are limited. So plant mm-hmm. light harvesting happens in the matter of milliseconds, nanoseconds, whereas mm-hmm. carbon fixation happens at the minute level or seconds, mm-hmm. and there are downstream limitations to be able to uh, convert all the light, all the photos into uh, carbohydrates. Uh, so, not all the light that a plant receives can be can be used. In vertical farming, we have the possibility to to really turn out to what exactly the, what the plant exactly needs, mm. and that might somehow comp- you know, compensate the cost that you do get in energy cost. There are many different things that you can do to optimize the energy efficiency of the system. That's the beauty of it. Whether or not, or whether that's more, or yeah. I mean, we know that it's m- more efficient than agri- um, traditional agriculture. Um, and I think many um, areas in or many institutions that are interested in vertical farming and also the vertical farming companies are interested in starting doing more life cycles assessments mm-hmm. to really assess what the actual impact is. But potentially we know that uh, it is quite high in terms of energy savings, even though you require energy to mm-hmm. run the system. I mean, and I guess ultimately you can connect to a renewable source of power. That's also That's a, another part of it. Um, um, the the fact that you can really uh, introduce these systems into um, sustainable energy sources. So the use of solar panels, the use of um, uh, wind mm-hmm. energy to to power these farms. Yes. So when, when you said... Uh, quenching so the plant can get damaged right if, if it has too much sunlight and so it has all these defense mechanisms yes. in place and so you can sort of is the idea that you sort of bypass all of those systems by just giving the optimal amount of light to the plant and at the right frequency is, is that the idea so you can get optimal growth yeah exactly so what we do is that we um we create uh light recipes that will give the plant exactly the amount of light that they will be using minimizing the effects of photo damage that mm. can be used that can that can trigger uh, any energy or that can trigger any losses so mm. you can really say okay i mean if, if you have a lettuce outside in the summer this lettuce will get around i don't know a thousand micromoles of light they, they cannot use all of them but we mm. can grow with 20 30 40 micromoles uh not 40 no, sorry uh, 200 micromoles of light this lettuce and it will have the same yield as a lettuce outside mm-hmm. so you really can decrease the amount of light in the system to make it efficient 
for the mm. plant to uptake. The, I guess you can also position the plant so that any spillover hits the, the other plant or the second plant along the line. The, is sort of the stacking and orientation. Yeah, that's something that um, it depends on the vertical farming. Like, I'm like, talking about vertical farms in general. Uh, uh, most of them, uh, and it's the same concept that in-farm uses, so you have um, illumination from the top. But other vertical farms actually have the plants vertically, mm-hmm. and you can illuminate from the side. So this is the, there is a big range of possibilities that you can implement in order to optimize light use efficiency. There has been also studies on how you can put uh, some light in from the bottom. So mm-hmm. because when, when vertical farms, you grow the plants in a quite dense manner. So you have a lot of plants together. So maybe shading and uh, leaf overlapping would lower the efficiency of this light harvesting. So you can actually illuminate from the sides mm-hmm. to illuminate the leaves that are below. And I guess you don't want to use the sunlight because then you lose control over the system and it's not scalable because only the plants on the outside will really see the sun is is that the idea or what's the reason that you sort of cut the sun completely out of the cycle well um let's say having having sunlight uh, in a controlled environment it's already a concept that you have in greenhouses Mm -hmm. so greenhouses already kind of optimize sunlight capture um so it's not only about lights. Vertical farming is also about uh, using a lot of the resources the most efficient way. Mm-hmm. So, of course, uh, if we ho- have uh, if we have solar illumination, yeah, you will have to kind of uh, drive it in a way that it will be optimal. So it's easier just to do it with LEDs. But also, if you think about it, uh, vertical farming is a climate resilient uh, mm-hmm. system. It's a seasonal resilient system. So the idea of having uh, vertical farms producing food, um, it's also to have availability of food all year round. Mm. You don't wanna, you, you can have the same fresh herbs, the fresh, same fresh lettuces in summer, in winter, in autumn, it doesn't matter. So we're independent of, of, of that. Mm. It's, uh, it's also climate resilient in that sense. So that's one of the pluses also when it comes to uh, the challenges that we face when when it comes to food production nowadays you know we need yeah. to we need to find new ways to be more resilient mm-hmm. so you can you can grow anywhere at any time you know, actually that's okay this might be a bit of a dumb question but mm-hmm. i guess you can run the system overnight right yes. so, so do yes. plants sleep do they need sleep they, <laughs> <laughs> yeah well they, they do they do need sleep um yeah but um yeah you can you can around the farms 24 hours mm-hmm. uh, we do th- do that but let's say uh, we don't have to stick to the daylight routine that you have outside mm. um, and that's also ha- that has to do with the energy efficient st- energy efficiency strategies that you can apply in a vertical farm so to go back to your questions do plants need sleep they do need sleep but uh, it has been also shown that you can grow plants to reach a certain productivity 24 hours Mm-hmm. They don't do, uh, let's say, th- you're just pushing them to the edge and then they kind of, uh, they can get the yield that you want it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but then they have to grow very, very fast and you need to harvest them very, very fast. Uh, like to give you an example, uh, some crops like mint, they do actually quite well in 24-hour cycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, some others, uh, like basil, they don't really like it so much uh, and you don't really gain much yield. Mm-hmm. So the idea of having 24 hour lights that you have to re- that you reduce the growing cycle so you can produce the same biomass in a shorter amount of time, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, so the, in, in general, they do. Plant metabolism is, is guided by the circadian clock. So mm-hmm. they will need, They of course, we know that uh, the clock is, uh, has been evolving with plants itself. So you have uh, during the day all this uh, light harvesting and CO2 metabolism and this, and then they need a night to catabolize mm-hmm. these sugars to create biomass, to create uh, secondary metabolites, primary metabolism, amino acid, etc. So they do need this rest, but you can push this time of rest to make it as short as possible so that you can produce as much biomass as possible. But you can also um, uh, do very, um, you can also apply very various strategies to use light efficiently throughout the whole day. So at Infarm, for example, we do have a system in which um, we have our farm turned on all the time, but we have light stages and dark stages. Mm-hmm. So plants are actually moving between stages, between day and night, but the farm is working 24 hours. Mm. So that's how you can uh, improve the energy use efficiency as well. So you have it on all the time, but you have the plants moving from the dark to the light uh, stages. So really, you, you really do need an automated system. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, that's also one of the beauties, I think, of vertical farming is that it's an industry that it actually needs innovation and applies innovation already so it's, it's 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 a system in which you can you put together agronomists engineers uh, data mm-hmm. scientists to create the most optimal growing system so mm-hmm. it's uh, and this is something that we can just do now we have the technology now to do that which sort of makes it sort of makes sense why i'm sort of seeing this and the hype coming, surrounding exactly. it coming now is so then what is the space saving that you can actually you know if you if you had the optimum system, how much land could you return to the wild? How much? What do you save? What's the saving in the footprint? Um, we we started to measure that, and um, I I don't have the numbers now in my head, but uh, we've been actually I mean quantifying now how much land you can save, and it's quite significant if you think about it. So, for example, I can tell you one of the farms that we have, our major farming system, is 154 uh, square meters mm-hmm. in, in area. Mm-hmm. And you will see it, and it's, it's quite a lot. And uh, in only 20, um, 20 square meters, you can produce around 400, 500 uh, kilograms of, mm-hmm. of, of herbs. How does that compare to the it's same? Qu- it's it's uh, higher. So it depends on the system, but uh we do know that vertical farms can have have a very use um have a higher use of space compared to traditional agriculture is that over the, do you mean over the course of a year or, or per square meter so uh, in terms of in terms of in terms of uh, uh kilograms of of crop mm-hmm. in terms of leafy greens or fruits or whatever uh, per square meter, they're definitely the yields are definitely higher than mm-hmm. compared to greenhouse agriculture, for example. And I guess another aspect of that is because you can run the system constantly and you can run overnight. You can, uh, you can run. You know, how many um, cycles can you do in the year compared to out in the field? You know, if you say, for example, you wanted to grow tomatoes, uh, d- can you do, say, for example, four harvests in the space that you do? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's a yeah, it's a good question, and uh, I mean, it's very case specific, you know. But let's say, uh, and it has, and it depends on the crop as well. So I'm gonna try to be fair in terms of the comparison. So, 
let's say um, a lettuce in in a greenhouse uh, can grow can 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 reach the around uh, 300 grams mm-hmm. in around let's say four or five weeks if we put about it. we can reach the same uh, in three weeks okay so you and 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 in way more or less space I see so you do really have uh, quite a bunch and we do it all year round mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that's uh, over winter as well so mm. yeah it's um it's really hard to put name numbers on the table because it always depends on the crop it depends on the mm-hmm. growing system but in general if you think about it uh, it's already a huge improvement in terms of space i guess also any calculation you do is going to have to take into account the substrate you use because you have to get that exactly. from somewhere and the um you probably have some nutrient exactly. uh, you need stock. to think about the cultivar as well because depending on the cultivars they there are some that are growing i mean you, you cannot compare it wouldn't be fair to compare uh let's say lettuces growing uh in in a greenhouse with herbs in a vertical farm I yeah mean, you have to really or you have to will have the same variety the same substrate, mm-hmm. same fertigation system. Actually, that's the, something I wanted to ask you about. Is so when when you are the is a lettuce that you grow in a vertical farm the same cultivar? You know, do you have like dwarf <laughs> plants or what? What? Do well, you lettuces use? are actually very small in terms mm-hmm. of height, so you can have the same cultivar. So, mm-hmm. um, in general, um, all the com. It depends on the company. I will t- I'll speak for what we do at Infarm. So we do have, uh, we work with uh, certified organic uh, seeds because uh, we are uh, certified to be pesticide free. So it has to be pesticide free from the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. So the, organ- the seeds are organic certified. And those are seeds that are also sold to different growers beyond or besides vertical farmers. Mm-hmm. So there are big seed producers that are globally available, but they produce organic seeds. So they're the same. The seeds, mm-hmm. the seed is the same. Um, so, so yeah, in principle, it, it, you can have the same lettuce growing in a vertical farm and in a greenhouse mm-hmm. if you wanted to. But so if I get back to the substrate, right? So the, you, if I want to imagine the system, I guess I can add some footage over the top of what these systems <laughs> look like. But um, so for those that are just listening, mm-hmm. you have stacked systems and the plants are growing in hydroponics or they're growing in a substrate or what are they growing? Yeah, there in? are different ways to grow them. So um, I'm going to go from like the general, what, what more or less everybody in the industry uses. So you can have hydroponics which is you would require a solution in hydroponics you have uh, something that's called nft so the the plants are constantly growing in a solution mm-hmm. or you can have even flow irrigation in which they just go they, w- they will be flooded mm-hmm. and then the water will be removed and then they will stay there and uh, you have also aeroponics in which you just have uh, mist mm-hmm. uh, of yeah like a cloud of irrigation that creates mist around the roots and then uh, they don't grow um, they don't need really any liquid through have the just uh, delivered to them um, and depending on the system you can also have different substrates so depending also on the product uh, you can have uh, mats that are of cellulose mats if you grow microgreens or mm-hmm. uh, other types of uh, cut product um, um, you can have also rockwood. Sometimes they use rockwood as an, another type of, of substrate. Um, or you can have peat moss. This is the mostly one, the, the, the one that is mostly used. Or peat moss combined with uh, cocoa. 
mm. as well, either as a loose substrate or as a plug. Mm. Um, at Infra, we mostly use uh, Bitmost combined with uh, Coco. It's a very common substrate that is also used in traditional agriculture. Um, yeah, and it depends on the crop. It can vary the crop. Uh, mm. You can also put some uh, other components like perlite or. But see, the reason why I was interested in asking this question specifically is because I wanted to know how you know. Obviously, you're getting that from somewhere. Yes. And so you want to you want to have a system that's as closed as possible, I, I guess. And also, you want to use renew. Is this are these renewable materials? What sort of damage do you yeah. do uh, just from the substrate yeah. alone? So. Um, Pit moss is actually a non-renewable material, and uh, this is um, a material that uh, it's it's um, it's basically it comes from uh, the um, deposits of a sphagnum. It's a moss. Uh, it's just a very yeah. It's it's a very enriched organic matter that you can find uh, in the Netherlands, for example. They have huge fields where you can extract pit moss. So it's not a, a non-renewable renewable source. And, and this is a challenge not only for the vertical farming industry, actually, but for the whole food production industry, um, because most of the substrates are not renewable. Renewable, so you have to find a way. So we've been we're, we're now trying to um, we do um, uh, have initiatives in order to lower the amount of peat moss that we have in the system to use something else. Um, there's also something interesting that I read uh, about. Um, from a research institution, I think it was the Julich Institute. They were very interested in circular economy projects. So there's also huge potential in the future to have a way to recycle, like to create your own substrate from mm -hmm. the whatever food waste that you have in the system to recirculate it back into the system. It's still, I think, in very early stages of the research development, but th th there is a potential to do so, so that, that we become, we, in an industry, we all have to be more and more independent of PINMOS. So there are also alternative materials. There are some a lot of companies now that uh, they offer substrates that are um, based on um, some carbohydrates, plant uh, derived carbohydrates that they, they, they build like a membrane or uh, mm -hmm. like a foam that's also, but it's, it's plant-based. So you can also use that. We've done some trials on that and they, they look very, very promising as well. So that's sort of the direction you want to move yeah, in. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge, not as I said, not only for the vertical farming industry, but in general, the whole food industry uh, who uses peat. Peat, peat is a very good substrate because it uh, can hold a lot of uh, nutrients and the water so you can really lower the amount of irrigation so it's quite good but you need to get away from it at some point we all and <laughs> we, will, we, we are working towards that we have to I know that, uh, so you mentioned that these systems use less pesticides and that le you know these are organic seeds that you're using but so uh, we, we don't use pesticides well, well the, see, this is one thing that I was a bit curious about because yeah. I know that, so at the Max Planck in, in the um, labs there, I know that occasionally they get infestations of, with any lab, right? You get infestations of insects. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess also if you have a nutrient feedstock in large quantities, those can go moldy. And so how do you control for, is it just that you're growing seeds Everything is in house, and so you're never getting any. You're never importing insects or pests. Mm. Pests is that the? Well, there are different strategies that we. So you can really, uh, at the moment, we we cannot really uh, work in a sterile environment. Mm. But um, we do con have a lot of control on the environment. So 
what you do is that, or what we do is that we, from the beginning to the end, we maintain a system that doesn't promote the growth of any pathogen. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to use any pesticides or fungicides. So when it comes to the seeds, so of course they come as they are and substrate as well. So whatever it is inside, it is inside, you cannot control. But then um, what we do is that we apply uh, beneficial insects and beneficial uh, microorganisms that kind of compete with the potential pathogens. So you kind of have a little ecosystem in which everything is in balance. Okay. So, so you've got a mini world. You have a mini world there, and then and and then with, with application of beneficials, you can already uh, lower down any potential pathogen that is in the system. Also, the irrigation uh, system that we have, uh, it's cleaned uh, with a UV light every time mm-hmm. we irrigate. Um, and because it's an automated system, you you everything is automated, so there is no mm-hmm. contact. There's not really you minimize the contact with people. Mm-hmm. Way more than in a traditional uh, farm, mm-hmm. because you have automated seeding. The plants go into a farm, and you don't touch them. Nobody, uh, you just take them out when mm-hmm. they are ready, to, ready to harvest. Uh, you can, and you can automate cutting and packaging. Mm-hmm. So there's no contact. I was kind of imagining in the future that people would be able to visit the urban farm and pick their own, but that's not going to happen because you want to have an isolated yeah, system. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's an, a very nicely an ideal world, but I guess, like, even even now, it's not even in the future, you know? Like, if you think about the vertical farms that Infarm has in the stores, yeah. you, you have them in the supermarket, and people can can see the plants growing, but they are, they are not the ones harvesting. So we have mm-hmm. people who go there and they harvest them and people get them right after harvest, but they are not allowed to get into the farm. You anymore. can't pick it out like a lobster. Yeah, no, no. it's not. <laughs> <laughs> like I want it. Yeah, no. are, are there plants which you just can't grow practically or economically because you have pests out in the field, which now become available in these sort of systems? You know, do, do we, are there... Yeah, so I guess the question is, are there plants which for economic reasons and just for practical reasons, which now suddenly we might get access to here in the West? Um, We do have uh, the possibility to introduce new crops that uh, are very tricky to have, for example, in Europe. That's for sure. it, it's a uh, um, let's it's it's a it's a more complex question than that because okay let's talk about the current products that you have in vertical farming. Uh, so most of the vertical farms produce herbs. I mean, in counting in farm as well, um, herbs, leafy greens, uh, lettuces, and from the range of um, from those crops, um, you can vary a lot, and there are a couple of crops that can be a little bit more exotic mm-hmm. that you can put in. Uh, so for example, I, I really like one that is called wasabi rucola that I never saw before mm-hmm. uh, until I started uh, working at Inform, and it's a very, very spicy rucola. It really is, it tastes like wasabi, which is quite nice. I don't know if they w- it was a really big product before. Yeah. It might have been grown before somewhere because we had to had it from somewhere, but I've never seen it so 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 much in the market as now. Mm-hmm. So we have the possibility to, to expand the range of crops that we grow in the categories that I mentioned now, I just mentioned. So in, in terms of herbs, you can grow now herbs that were very exotic before and that we couldn't really, there was not a market for it. And this mm-hmm. is also part of the job of the vertical farming industry. We're also trying to bring to the consumers new products that are not were not available before. And you can have them now because we grow them here. 
Mm. So wasabi rucola is a good example of it. Or Peruvian mint. Like yeah. Something that are very culinary herbs that were not very well known, you can put them in the market now. And and, and there are other crops uh, uh, that might have that will have the potential to be grown in a vertical farm and that haven't been grown in traditional agriculture for many other reasons maybe because they're not unknown so um there is a nice program we have a, a breeding program at Jim farm and we're looking at looking very various species that are very uncommon hmm. to the public and to, to introduce them in a vertical farming system now other crops that are well known so let's say like tomatoes or or staple crops and such um they still being uh, staple crops, for example, they're still grown uh, outside and you can grow them. And they have a lot of challenges, you know, like uh, we have to deal with uh, climate change, droughts, uh, pests, and there's a potential to grow them in vertical farms, but it's not, uh, th there are a lot of steps that are required to, to be able to grow these crops in vertical farms. Yeah, see, this is, I guess, a good example would actually be wasabi. I think yeah. that is only grown locally in Japan and places like this, and we actually don't get real wasabi here in the West, as far yeah. as I understand. Well, it's wasabi uh, rucola. It's called wasabi rucola. I, I, I know, but yeah. you made me think okay. of that. But and the other one would be um, the cashew fruit, I think. We yeah. don't get that. But um, see, the thing I'm a bit curious about is industrial agriculture is a finely tuned machine that's been going for many developing for many years and so it's sort of a tough act to follow and so i was, I was kind of curious what the angle is that um that vertical farms can break into the market is the idea that you you gain access to these you don't necessarily at the outset have to compete with uh, the industrial system that's currently there because you're really bringing in new new species new cultivars and you're creating a new market. Is is that sort of, what makes these economically um, viable, I guess, is the sort of question I'm, I'm aiming at. Well, um, that's, I'm probably not the <laughs> expert to, to answer this, but I mean, in general, um, so going back to the crops that I just mentioned, so those crops are very easy to grow in a vertical farm. And these are crops that, for which you can do a lot of automation. So, um, let's say it, um, vertical farms are uh, built in a way so that you can optimize you, uh, the space, you can optimize resources. And to make them viable, you need to introduce a lot of automation. So the, the crops that you introduce in the system need to be compatible with these strategies. Mm -hmm. So of course, uh, I'm not saying we're going, um, we are now part of the solution in terms of food production because we can put all these tools together to create food that otherwise would have been produced in a greenhouse setup or a traditional agriculture with way more resources. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, for the crops that are currently suitable for vertical farms, we have shown that we can really compete quite good mm -hmm. because you can really create a lot of biomass. You have very high yields. You can automate processes, so you reduce a lot of the OPEX and CAPEX. Mm -hmm. And that's already a quite... Um, big mark compared to uh, traditional agriculture for these specific types of products. When it comes to other new products, there are other challenges that, that we need to face mm -hmm. because uh, um, at the moment, for example, there is uh, the next step, I think, will be, for example, having staple crops in a vertical farm. Mm. And, but for that, we, we, there are a lot of steps that we will need to, to go through before we get there. 
That, and there you is mean potential. wheat and things like this? Like wheat, uh, rice, I don't know, yeah. But it's still, it's um, it's been something in the horizon from also from the researcher's point of view, like mm -hmm. what's the potential of having growing wheat in a vertical farm? Uh, a lot of, uh, there are a couple of universities that have been published some studies about it on really what the, the potential would be and what would be the, the ideal ideotype. Mm -hmm. But uh, but it is indeed clear that for this type of crops, we need to have breeding strategies to mm -hmm. breed those crops for a vertical farm, which is a completely different focus than to breed for outside crops. Yeah, I want to ask you about how you develop a line uh, a little bit later on in the discussion. But um, so so I guess the so you, you really can uh, bring down the prices for certain cultures even now uh, at the outset. And so it's not necessarily an exclusive thing. It's no, no, no. That's that's the whole point. To have affordable food, high quality affordable food for everybody. Mm. So if you think about it, um, the types of herbs that we offer, they're really affordable. Mm -hmm. uh, we work with retailers. We don't work with, like at, at Infra, for example, with most of the vertical farm in, uh, in industries, they they don't sell like very exclusive restaurants or no, there's mm -hmm. something that you can have on your table any day. If you like to buy food from retailers, we do sell uh, food uh, for, we do sell our products in retailers. Mm. So it's something out there for everybody. And I guess one of the big savings, as you said at the beginning, is that you shorten the supply chain. Yes. So you have less wastage. And if you're saving 30% of your crop, or whatever the percentage, if yeah. that's a huge percentage. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not. Ha we haven't measured really quite a lot, but if if it's reported that twenty percent of the food that uh, is produced is wasted through supply chain, I can. I, I'm, I'm sure that we are way below that already. Hmm. And I guess also, I'm. I, I don't know if this is the case, but if you've homogenized the system and you have ideal settings, then every item of food that comes out is going to look perfect. Yeah. And so on the shelf customers are going to just maybe a higher percentage will be selected by customers yeah um, exactly because you have yeah that's another beauty of the system that the you have such a good control of the environment that plants have grow homogeneously hmm. you don't have strange variations and they all we, we have the possibility to work on a target weight and we reach that target weight yeah. every 99 percent of the time our harvest performance is really high <laughs> so you have sort of cartoon uh, items of food coming out. It's yeah, yeah, exactly. But so this is one thing that I don't know which way. I, I, I'm not sure which side of the fence things are going to fall on. Because I can imagine that, as we discussed, these indoor farms, these vertical farms with controlled systems give you access to a wide variety of cultivars that you otherwise might not have access to. But at the same time you're creating homogenized systems. And so do you think ultimately we're going to have a less or a more diverse uh, set of food crops that we're actually eating? Because, you know, at the moment we're restricted by the fact that in that field you can only grow this type of tomato and maybe over in this location you grow this. But here everything's homogenized. So are we going to end up with one tomato? And what, what, which direction do you think this is going to push ultimately? Hmm. I do think that the fact that we grow very homogeneous crops doesn't mean that we cannot have diversity on the things that mm -hmm. we grow. So I do think that we have the potential to have a diverse uh, production. If you think about salads, just let's take the simple salad, uh, as a, a salad mix. The salads, everyone knows that they're like lettuces, probably some spinach in it mm -hmm. and rucola. 
But we have the potential to, for example, have salad mixes that have some leafy greens in them, uh, some sorrel, uh, even flowers if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Of course, th- th- those plants will be homogeneously grown and they will be very, they will have pretty much the same size and biomass when they come out of the system, but you can can mm-hmm. op- have a very, you can have a diverse uh, catalog products to offer mm-hmm. inside this crop category. And I suppose that'll also be something that distinguishes companies. I mean, if you have in-farm is competing in this side of the market and some other companies uh, competing over here, one of the things you can present to customers is we have these cultivars that no one else has or we, we, we produced, we've sort of found this corner of the market that we do really well in. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't tell you really how. I mean, you could, of course, potentially you can do everything. I don't know if that's a... a, a I don't know if that will become a main competition strategy in the market. I, it's hard to say for me. I, I wouldn't, I couldn't tell you. But I could imagine that. I mean, we do we, that. Uh, we do, do. We try to do that. We try to have also very, very new stuff in the market. Of course, uh, you cannot have everything new growing in the system because uh, I, mean, com- I mean, at least in farm compared to other vertical farming, we're a, we're a global company. That means that. What we do guarantee is that the basil that you have in Berlin will be the same basil that you have in the States. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you cannot choose any wild basil to grow because yeah. you need to have a, a availability of seeds. But you can do introduce, for example, Thai basil mm-hmm. and uh, Greek basil. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that kind of that can be a little bit of a plus, yes, I think. So, yeah. On the on the topic of perfect crops and being within sort of the 99 percent um you mentioned before we started talking uh before the interview that you had i don't know if you or someone in your company had produced uh i think it was strawberries for the matrix movie or something (laughs) like why (laughs) how how did this happen what's no, I, I'm. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you much about it. Um, we just got a request that uh, we wanted to. That there was some interest in, in putting a futuristic food growing environment in the movie, and at that time, and, and we are still, um, we were doing some research on strawberries, and they were very interested in how the setup would grow, and and then and we provided the, the strawberries. But the strawberries are actually um, uh, have been produced in vertical farms already. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there was a company, they're not in, in, in anymore, but there was a company in, in France um, that was one of the leads mm-hmm. on strawberry production in vertical farming. They had, the vertical farms come, come in different formats. So one of the formats is a container farm. So you have mm-hmm. a shipping, shipping container that you adapt to grow plants mm-hmm. inside and they produce strawberries. So, I see. Yeah. But but so it was because you can also produce. They wanted to see the whole uh, growing. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if the movie. I haven't seen the movie. I just saw the the, the snapshot of, of the scene, and it kind of it's, it looks a little bit sci-fi, but it kind of represents pretty much what we do. So yeah, they had the plant and uh, growing in this LED setup with with LEDs and. And then they had like a camera monitoring the plan and telling like the, some statistics about the plan. And that's mm. how they kind of grow it. But this is not far away from reality. We actually do that in order to monitor the plants because as you, I mentioned, plants go into the system and they just come out once they need to be harvested. So we need to monitor them. So we have uh, in, in our farms, we have a system of various sensors to, to monitor the environment. We have 
all these farms are connected into a cloud, so we get real-time data of the, the environmental conditions of the farm. And we also have uh, phenotyping technologies mm. that monitor the plant growth and can give us um, information about growth rate, height, uh, digital biomass. Uh, mm -hmm. We can uh, have any indicators of greenness and other um, multispectral indexes that can be related to um, plant health. So we do monitor them live. And so what's the, what's the reason why you're connected to the cloud? Can you control, like, what are the levers you can pull? Can, uh, so there's temperature, uh, the gas composition, so what, do, what do you... What do what you, you control? So in, in, um, we control temperature, humidity, uh, CO2 input, um, airflow, um, irrigation number, light intensity. Um, daily, you can um, monitor, can, can uh, change daily the, the dimming settings. Uh, and with all that, you pretty much have everything covered, mm -hmm. uh, what, everything that the plant needs. So um, there are things that you can adjust uh, at, a, at a big farm level, and there are things that you can adjust at the bench level, mm -hmm. depending on the crop. So that's another interesting thing of the system as we have it here, is that uh, in one vertical farm, you can grow many different crops with different requirements. Mm -hmm. So you can grow in the same farm, lettuces, herbs, uh, leafy greens in, in the same farm and we adjust just tiny bits of light uh, yeah. settings or irrigation frequency yeah is, is a, something that just sort of sprang to mind is is there um, is it is it difficult when you bring in a new agricultural setting is there sort of regulation you need to get around or can anyone go out and just grow plants in whatever way and then sell them or are there you know, what's the regulatory environment like? Is it tough to put new cultivars on the market or you can just do it? Um, well, in general, um, you have to stick to general safety regulations for food production. They are not exclusively from, for vertical farming. So, and it depends on the product. So, for example, for cut product, there is a set of specific regulations. Whatever it comes from, it can be come. It can come from uh, greenhouses or from a vertical farm. The cut product needs to have certain standards of uh, mm -hmm. like to show no micro microbial loads. Uh, the shelf life data needs to be regist registered, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, so you do you have to stick to general food regulation. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's nothing special that sort of distinguishes you from. No, maybe the only thing that it's a little bit different, it's, uh, it's uh, because um, in terms of uh, infrastructure, so when you put a vertical farm in a new building, so you need to also keep in mind uh, so, so some safety regulations in the building because it's not, an, uh, you know, it's not a field. So in the yeah. field, you, can have, you don't have architecture in the field, let's say. Mm. I mean, but if you, if you put a farm in a new warehouse and then you need to make sure that the farms are located, in a specific way that you have safety uh, paths for workers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that's so. That's those are not really exclusively from vertical farms. Those are exclusively for any building that mm. you, you do. So you have to adjust. But so you're not using genetically modified. No. But uh, even though you're not using this, what what's the um, just out of curiosity, what are the restrictions here in Europe? Is it um, is it just against things that use CRISPR and sort of these di directed approaches or can is it also against food that's been irradiated? For example, you mentioned you use ultraviolet light on the feedstock. No, yeah. we, we use it in the water. In the water. Yeah. But so there's no, um, I know that 
for example, uh, radiation is used to kill pests or to um, freshen food, let's say, after it's been sitting on the yeah. shelf for a while. Yeah. Um, it, that, so that's not included. No, that's yeah. not a part of, of GMOs. GMOs are basically yeah, yeah, genetically modified organisms. Mm-hmm. So you have... Um, um, yeah, you introduce... So there are different techniques. Um, so the classic ones for this is the introduction of a... Um, of a vector that comes from a bacteria and has a gene that can be inserted into the genome of the plant and that makes it uh, a new gene, a foreign gene that is in the plant. So for those uh, strict regulations in Europe, we're not allowed to grow them. Uh, the CRISPR-Cas discussion, CRISPR-Cas is, it's somehow in the gray line because um, CRISPR-Cas, CRISPR-Cas is actually a, a natural method that, mm-hmm. some, that uh, some bacteria have developed in order to modify their genome. So it's a natural system. It's not a foreign system. We're using mm-hmm. a natural system to to create genetic modifications in the plants, but it's still in discussion. Uh, and I think the, the panel for discussion, the next panel in the European Union, is going to be next year mm-hmm. to define whether or not they are considered GMOs or not. So this could actually open up the door <coughs> because yes. this is the most directed system we have. Yeah, and it's not very highly efficient because you don't, you can, you have control of of the gene sequence that you target. Mm. And the location as well, yeah. which is different from uh, traditional transformation methods in which you just, you know, you bombard uh, a tissue mm-hmm. with a lot of constructs and you hope that, that it gets inserted in the right place and you don't have uh, secondary or, or follow-up insertions that can affect other parts of the genome. Yes, yeah, so, so this is what I wanted to ask you about. I, I've been told by other people, I don't know if this is true, that you one technique is you bombard... I guess seeds or yeah, uh, with or radiation, and then you just see the variations you get. Is this actually used or? Yeah, this is, um, um, but with radiation or with um, certain chemicals that you can mm-hmm. uh, use to transform seeds. So you just immerse them. So they are mutagenic agents. So they are chemicals okay. that uh, they just can cause damage in or not damage they, they can affect the sequence the dna sequence mm-hmm. randomly inside the genome okay and then you just hope that one of those hits will generate a trait that you're interested in and and so does that fall under the traditional gmo yeah that's part okay. of the traditional gmo okay so that's the sort of thing that's it's, it's funny that um CRISPR wouldn't be counted potentially as GMO, which is, so it's a highly selective. <laughs> yeah, but but the method itself is found in nature. The principle is uh, mm-hmm. is uh, is found in nature. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that we as humans created. It's not a chemical that we develop. It's not a bombarding gun. It's uh, it's just inserting, uh, yeah, trying to apply a biological process inside uh, that is already found in in some mm-hmm. bacteria. So to transport plants. One of the things you mentioned, you, so you, you said you, you already have strawberries and so for certain cultivars, you, I thought you needed bees to pollinate. How do you pollinate? Well, we've been, so we don't, we, 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 we've been at the R&D level, we've been doing trials with fruity crops. Mm-hmm. And yeah, pollination is uh, one of the things that uh, needs to be modified in, in vertical farming because pollination, uh, well, I mean, for, for the, for example, for this, company that produced these strawberries in France, they because they had a container farm. So mm. for them, it was quite easy just to bring the bees in and then take them out. Okay. It was easier to control. So depending on the setup, you can still use biotic pollination. Mm-hmm. 
But for other systems, in, in our case, for example, it's not possible to have uh, biotic pollination, so you have to find alternatives for it. So there are been reports of um, using wind, vibrations, it's already in the literature, and we're just trying to find the best strategy. So, but that, And that's a combination of hardware and, uh, and, and biology together, mm-hmm. because you need to find... Uh, you, you, we work together with the engineers to define airflow settings, vibration settings. How does this translate into a, s- a station that you can use for for pollination? How do they get the plants there? How we take, how do we take them out? How do we monitor that pollination was done efficiently in mm. an automated way? Mm. Because the idea is that you want to automate everything. So it's something that we are. Uh, working at, at the moment uh, so you can literally have bursts of wind and you just shake yeah the plants exactly so you they... can you can really blow the plants with different frequencies of mm. and different speeds of wind and and that works actually uh, mm. it has been published already and uh, we've seen that uh, wind pollination also works vibration mm-hmm. also works but uh, so i imagine you said it was um if I'm getting the numbers right, you have 150 square meters in your largest. Uh, um, 154 in the. So that's like two large apartments, I guess, in yeah. in Berlin. Yeah, very <laughs> large like. ones. <laughs> yeah, and, but so but the reason why I'm asking is because I guess if these if these scale well, you could even just have bees living in the. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, in our particular case, it's a bit tricky because. Uh, um, uh, you will see we have our farms are a closed box mm-hmm. and uh, the plants are moving through stations so mm-hmm. we have uh, the plants go from uh, a light station to a dark station to an irrigation station but is it a conveyor belt or what what do you mean it's, move- it's a, there's a elevator in the middle so okay. uh, so the plants move around so you, you don't have a static growth other farms there are other vertical farming companies that have just shelves Mm. And and the plants are going. They they have a yeah a belt or or they have a forklift leaf that takes the plants, puts them there, and they stay there. Yeah. And they have day and light statically in that shelf. We have a dynamic system in which the plants go to whatever station they require to be. So they they go into the system and then they go to light and then they go to sleep and then they go to have irrigation. <laughs> you know they 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 they're moving around. Um, and uh, and it's all automated. Mm. But th- that means that you need to have sensors there. The elevator needs to move, and if you have flies or bees or flying around, it's very tricky because they they're actually very <laughs> keen to, f- to 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 touch the far red sensors. Okay. So it's really it's really tricky. So it's really tricky to co- you cannot control the movement, and if you have an automated system and every and any small disturbance will affect mm-hmm. the system. So it's really tricky to have them inside. So actually, it's just better to use. So that's why you need to use uh, yeah, abiotic pollination. So, do this? Does the system also move the plants for harvesting? Yes. So the, okay. So they, there's like a harvesting. There's a, a what do you call it? A, a seeding? Like a planting station? And so we do have um, uh, we do have a seeding phase. Uh, so we have a seeding machine uh, where the plants are seeded. Then they go to a nursery phase. Mm. Uh, and in the nursery phase, uh, currently it's, it's happen- happens in the specific smaller growth chambers, uh, mm. but it w- that will slowly change. So that they, and then the seedlings have to, uh, depending on the crop, but after one, two weeks, three weeks, depending on the crop, it's always dependable. They will move to the big farm. Mm-hmm. And then you have an entrance to the farm, you put the plants in, plants go in, they spend their two weeks, <laughs> uh, they grow very nicely, and then they, you harvest them in the same entry point. I see. 
Oh, it's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, but so the, you you mentioned that you're you sort of started with herbs and this sort of thing. Is that I'm guessing they're they're technically simpler and they just have better margins or like what's the how do you select your like well okay well, I, I know that one of the things that you work on is is take developing new lines for, for instance right well we don't we don't develop new lines um at the moment no we i mean it's just that uh, so we started with you with crops that are easier to grow mm-hmm. so in general the industry uh you have to live basically limitations in the vertical area mm-hmm. so you you have limitations on height so there's many there's not much things that you can grow in in, in very <laughs> like 30 centimeters so you have to you have to go for crops that are short mm-hmm. that are that are fast growing mm-hmm. uh, and basically those requirements are perfect for crops like herbs for leafy greens and lettuces and microgreens as well you know, it's it's a height uh, mm. limitation, basically. Um, the next step, as I mentioned, so the, and and this is a very nice market to start into. You know, if you mm. you want uh, the vertical farming system systems or the vertical farming industry, we are there as an alternative to to food production. I don't think personally. I don't think that we will replace the uh, current traditional agriculture it will mm. be it, i mean i don't know in the future can tell but who knows maybe but i don't think now we will do it because there's still a very limited range of crops that we can grow in these systems because mm-hmm. of the hardware itself and the next challenge then will be to to breed crops that are suitable to grow in vertical farms that's mm-hmm. the next step so you want a short apple tree that's 30 centimeters high <laughs> i mean i wouldn't but then then exactly but then if you want to make the effort of breeding something then mm. let's make breeding for something that really has an impact on the food production uh, mm. system and the, and the food consumption. So I wouldn't go for apples, basically, because it, but I would think about something like a staple crop, mm-hmm. like wheat, rice. I don't. Know. So we're not going to see orchards inside. <laughs> I don't think so. Somebody asked me if we could grow avocados in it or something. Like I mean, that. that would be amazing because they have huge water consumption. Yeah, right? but I mean, uh, I think, um, but that's another issue, you know. Uh, it's good that as a as uh, uh, like as mankind we pro- we use technology to improve our lives, but we need to be also a little bit um, more conscious of just because we can produce things better or we can produce more doesn't mean that we really need to produce everything. Like why do we do we really need to have avocados like on the table every day? Mm. You know, I mean, I do love them, but uh, and I'm happy because I'm South American, so I would love. I like the first time <laughs> I came to Europe, I, I really missed avocados until they started appearing in the market. But I'm thinking, like, do we really need to have that? Like, mm. we, we could have just uh, also be a little bit more conscious on how food gets to our table, and then just try to make choices that limit the transport mm. of food to our table. Mm-hmm. Not waiting for some uh, development to happen so that you can grow avocados in your kitchen you know <laughs> it's um but that's let's say my view um so your view would be then that you you like the fact that we have seasonal varieties that come in and come out and you you like the fact that certain areas have different uh, variety if I, I imagine um avocados uh back home you've got yeah. all different varieties yes. that you don't have here yeah um so you're hoping that this will be built into the system or? I think 
what, what the vertical farming industry has highlighted is that we really can use a lot of the technology that we have available for many other things into food production. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that you don't have, you don't, I mean, you, I don't know if it's feasible or not to have vertical farms in Colombia, where I come from. Mm-hmm. We'll be very interested, but I think for example, but Colombia is a place that has a lot of resources. So there has not been a lot of need to optimize the mm-hmm. resource efficiency. But I do think that we can use technologies that are applied into vertical farming system in any other uh, production system. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, we, because nobody else has been using them a lot because they really don't have to. But mm-hmm. I think we need to start using technology to f- to to optimize their their resource use efficiency of food production systems. Mm-hmm. And vertical farming is an example of how you can do it because we need to do it. We have to do it in order mm-hmm. to be efficient, in order to be competitive. Mm-hmm. So if we, want, if we want to really show that we can grow with weight more or less water, then we need to have a system that is automatically controlling the amount of water that comes in, that cleans the water automatically, that recycles water automatically. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of technology that mm. goes into it. That is. I guess this is one of the benefits. What you're you're going to have less runoff going into the ocean, destroy it. Because yeah. actually, this is one yes. one of the big downsides of industrialized agriculture that it yes. destroys the amount of water that is being used is is immense. Mm. So the, you, you brought up an interesting. So so Colombia is sort of blessed with its climate. It's and, an amazing place. <laughs> right. So you can you can grow, and I guess there are other countries like I guess the U.S. and Ukraine and places like this are known for being able to produce vast amounts of staple crops. Um, so one thing I'm wondering about: Are there any countries that are particularly well? positioned to sort of dominate the urban farming market or are we going to see you know how, how is this going to how are these developments going to affect food security are, are we going to ha- see new places that sort of dominate this new market or well um this market kind of started appearing um in the northern hemisphere so um i do think uh that uh like you mean that you you mentioned the states, and um, ironically, even though they have vast areas for growing, uh, they're mm. actually one of the pioneers of vertical farming. Mm-hmm. So most of the bigger, the well-known vertical farming companies in the world, they're American companies. We have AeroFarms, uh, for for instance. Um, they're they're really big, and they they started there. So it's it's not about uh, let's say how much resources a country has. It's more about how we start changing the way we produce. And this is very country specific mm. and very, um, yeah, let's say, um, depends on the market as well. You know, mm. like in Europe, it became a very popular development because in Europe, the diet has turned out also to be a little bit more um, f- meat free, more healthy, more local. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of needs in the market. So I can imagine that other country, o- other areas of the world, like Asia, Will probably will be also coming up as uh, leaders and Japan does it very well. It's where very well known to have uh, a lot of uh, they call it plant factories, mm-hmm. um, so they have it already. Uh, and other countries in Asia, of course, mm-hmm. um, it's hard to tell from my side as a biologist to to have an idea of what I think will be the market uh, mm-hmm. out there. But I do think that. Uh, 
it doesn't necessarily correlate with the resources of a country. Mm -hmm. It might, but it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. I was wondering if these developments might sort of democratize agriculture in two ways. So first of all, you can grow those strawberries in the middle of the Sahara potentially. Yes. And uh, secondly, one of the things you mentioned is that you shorten the supply chains. So it might then become cost preventative to import your because you don't have you're not working at scale anymore if you're shutting down mm. all the trade networks let, let's say and so it might be just more efficient to now this country that never grew food locally it makes sense now rather than importing yes, yes. and so you might open up whole new markets yes, that weren't yes. there before yeah i think so I um there is um Th th there is one concept that was uh, always about like, um, like when we talk about food security, mm. you know, food security means uh, for ma for many places uh, the avail availability of getting food. But uh, I think you can call it more to, to be really fair and, and, and to be a more democratic. It would be more like food independence in the sense mm -hmm. that it's not about that you get food no matter what so like uh, but it's more about you being able to produce your own food mm -hmm. uh, as a country so I, i'll give you a very quick example it sounds a little bit up outside the vertical farming industry but in colombia it's colombia is a very diverse place and you can grow whatever you want but really literally you can grow everything uh, maybe uh, some crops that cherries maybe maybe though. cherries <laughs> not but, but 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 there are a bunch of other fruits that you can eat instead of cherries there are very good so but then there are places in colombia in which uh, I, I was living there, there there was a place that um they extract a lot of oil in that place mm -hmm. so there's not a lot of agriculture around and people were saying yeah but look here people have food because we have all this revenue from the oil extraction and you you couldn't get any bananas look i mean the weather was it was a very hot place and you could grow really everything there but the food that you could get there was food that was produced in chile for example i was getting i was eating apples from chile in the middle of the tropics in yeah. colombia which for me was an absurd idea and it was still in the sense of yeah you have food food security if uh, I'm, I'm quotation mark because of course there is a revenue from the oil companies so that you can access and you can buy food that is imported into your table but that's not really what uh, food security means. It means that you can be able to grow your food locally and have it locally mm. to you and accessible to you. Yeah, I suppose uh, the the one worry that I have along these lines is, you know, one of the things that keeps the world in peace is that we trade with one another. Yeah. I, this is sort of outside of your biology <laughs> biology uh, <laughs> background, but I, I, I do, do you have any feeling about th this do you think this is going to actually impact i guess world peace it's a big question to ask <laughs> yeah yeah it's a big question to ask um i, I mean uh, you mean like if, if vertical farming will have a big effect of it yeah the social well, implications of, of you know it's very good that you're you're okay so the the environmental benefit of shutting down long-range trade networks. I mean, these are very efficient networks, so at the moment maybe they are the, the most efficient environmental system to have in place, but the, the, the downside might be that when you shut down these trade, these long, if, if you're really able to dominate the market, 
and now all of your stable crops are produced locally the thing that i would worry about is that you remove this interconnectedness that sort of i think in general uh, we we do need to change the way how we produce food so the mm. way it's happening to now to have this long supply chain that has to change either way mm. and the market will have to evolve with it mm. uh, because it's not sustainable. I mean, is uh, we we already know that uh, the CO two footprint of mm. planes. Is, I mean, like we 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 have to change it. There is no option anyway. Mm. And I do think that the market will have to adapt then accordingly, and everything will run uh, as an engine in a different way. Mm. And I guess one of the one of the things that sort of counters my worry is that you don't have you know if you can democratize the market now you're not having um resource strains w- between countries like you can really produce everything in every location um l- l- let me ask you uh, let me ask you about um do, do you think do you think ultimately so so a big part of this is automation do you do you do you think that this is going to lead to the explosion of new jobs or do you think this is going to reduce the number of jobs that are acquired ultimately? It already has changed the the availability of new jobs. Oh, yeah? Because when you think about data scientists, mm-hmm. just to give you a quick example, data scientists, nobody thought that data scientists are crucial players in agriculture. And they are. For the vertical farming industry, they are. Mm. Because we can control a lot of the environment that we have. We can collect so much data Mm-hmm. And we need to know how to process this data and how to improve the system, how to make the systems smart. Mm-hmm. To, you know, like AI is something that is out there to improve the use efficiency of vertical farms. And data scientists are a key part of it. Mm-hmm. And it's already changing. It's not something in the future. Like, like if, if we think about the, the colleagues that I have, our team, our R&D team, of course, we have biologists, we have mm-hmm. uh, horticulturists, agronomists. But part of it is uh, it's really engineers, data scientists. That's the core of it. Hmm. So it has already changed. So the workforce of agriculture is just going to be completely... <laughs> and it's, it's actually even more interesting hmm. because you can have... Uh, I, I, this is one of the things I really like about this job, actually, is that I have the chance to learn from so many different areas. Uh, and you can start to think about how you can apply things of uh, from a completely different industry into the food industry mm. so uh, we have worked people that had worked for um, I don't know um, si- uh, these companies that uh, optimized uh, the use of electrical bikes okay you know like so, so people who work in very random places that we never thought would be working in a food producing company but we kind of think on on how can we optimize the system how can we make it smarter that's very interesting. And it has already changed. And I think it should be like this because mm. as, as mankind, we have a lot of challenges. So we need to put all the different minds together to, to push forward. So what's the, what do you think the next big technology is that's coming in urban farming? What's the next, like what's the big exciting, th- are there any big things on the horizon that we're sort of seeing? Coming? Well, I do think that the applications of AI um, into production systems it's critical. Uh, we started working on that. We do have some systems uh, in in place that, but they're still not quite there. They're not as smart enough. But they need to get smarter. <laughs> uh, and I think that uh, that's the the plus. I am um, mm. one of the in one side, and the other side is the challenge of having to to broaden the type of products that you can grow in a vertical mm. farm. 
So uh, it's not only about breeding staple crops to be suitable for a vertical farm. It's about everything that comes with it. Mm. Because uh, actually you can, uh, you need to have a lot of automation of processes. Mm -hmm. So how do you optimize harvest in wheat in a vertical farm? How do you optimize, uh, um, optimize or you have to automate uh, yeah, pollination, for example. That's a good example. So, you so have can to you can you take me through what it, that looks like then? Like, say, say for example, uh, like, how do you? Wh what does the picture look like from a point of view of we want to introduce a new crop? Like, are you able to sort of paint a picture of how you initially select what? cultivar to use and then the steps that it takes to actually you know from the conception to yeah. now it's on my plate <laughs> yeah exactly so okay well um let's start with the crops that we already have yeah. because that's the most straightforward so um there is uh, always like a market research or a client that wants a different pro a specific product so we have a product team they come to the crop science team and say yeah we want to grow this type of let's say lettuce or whatever so the first thing that we do is that we screen cultivars uh, and, and we look for uh, seed companies that have specific requirements. So organic certified seeds, availability worldwide, because this mm -hmm. product is not for a client X. We also plan to, if we have it mm -hmm. for one location, we want to put it in another location. So they have to be. And then we do basic tests like germination tests. Um, um, and then uh, we create, we, we already have gathered a lot of knowledge on how to grow most of leafy greens and lettuces already. So we already kind of know, okay, this environmental settings will work. So we try those first. <laughs> and if not, then we tweak them a bit. Uh, we need to adjust to yield. And then we have what we call a growing recipe. So we develop a growing recipe. Then after that is set up, um, this passes to a production run to mm -hmm. see if the crop actually behaves as it does in research because researchers mm -hmm. were a little bit more careful. We have a little bit of control. We monitor constantly. Uh, and this recipe, this growing recipe contains information of everything. So it mm -hmm. contains information of how many seeds you put per per area. What's the nursery time that you require? What's the light setting? What are the light settings, humidity, temperature, irrigation frequency? What is the nutrition uh, composition mm -hmm. of the fertigation solution? Everything. And we just put it in a like in a cookbook, in a recipe, <laughs> and then this goes to production, and then they, they do the production run. There's also, of course, depending on the product, uh, we do post-harvest evaluation of it. So mm -hmm. if it's a cut product, if it's a pot, if it's a herb that it's been so loose, so we also have to evaluate what the shelf life of this product will be so that mm -hmm. the, the, the client knows what to expect. We do shorten supply chain, of course, but we are still depending on shorter supply mm -hmm. chain conditions. So even even though the plants are not traveling for two weeks or something or in a plane, we do still need to take into account the time that they spend from here into the, the supermarket mm -hmm. or the retailer. We propose um, packaging material that is sustainable or, or that provides a good shelf life. And everything then goes to a production run and then it goes and that's it. Um, but those are for crops that are already, like from the nature, already mm -hmm. suitable for vertical farming. Other crops that are a little bit more complex, like if you move towards fruity crops, mm -hmm. which is the next step for vertical farms, then they require other other types of things. But it's basically the, th the sense of uh, cultivar selection or so, you already, you kind of screen around what's out there already. Mm -hmm. uh, and then... Uh, depending on the crop, then you have to tweak certain things. So for example, the pollination is one of them. So mm -hmm. you have to work a little bit harder on have effective pollination with abiotic means. 
but it's just having like more more points to the recipe. Yeah. So you're just creating, and then the same is pretty much straightforward. In the future, for other crops, like when it comes to staple crops, for example, there are too many. There, there are two ways to do it. So either you can, uh, and 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 that's uh, part of the the challenges. And it's not only inform. It's like the, there are also a lot of initiatives in research institutions to think about how we can breed for vertical farming. So what we have at the moment in terms of knowledge is that there has to, that we need to have an idea, an uh, idotype. So we need to have what what will be the ideal form of a mm -hmm. crop, and this is where we are at at the moment. So what are the traits that this crop needs to have to be grown in a vertical farm? And the tricky part there is it's, it's completely different to what you have already in, in the field. Like breeders have have bred for drought resistance, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, like to, to deal with things with changes in the environment. The traits that are required for vertical farming are completely different. Mm -hmm. So this is what we are at the moment. We, need, we are at the point in which we are defining the traits that are relevant to mm -hmm. grow in a, a vertical farm uh, suitable staple crop. So it's actually, you're really at the beginning then of this Yeah, but of breeding. if you think about it, vertical farming is very, very new. Mm. So, I mean, we actually, I think we're doing a lot of, a lot of fast steps. Uh, so I hadn't really them. thought about that. So like if, if you, if you want to grow in, let's say Australia, maybe you need your crops to be drought resistant. Yeah. But then I guess if you can control the environment and you can make the environment perfect or as perfect as possible, then really you can breed for taste, exactly. size, um, all sorts of different uh, traits um, biomass for yeah. example and so really this is opening up the door to having much nicer food yes potentially yes hmm. and you don't have to go so far in breeding we can already mm -hmm. do it just by controlling the environment mm -hmm. so we mm -hmm. already do it uh, mm -hmm. for the crops that we're currently growing we can optimize the environment so that they have a specific uh, Specific architecture, specific coloration, specific uh, nutritional composition. Mm. For not for everything, but mm. we we have it for some, and we have the potential to do it even more. So I hadn't really appreciated this. You you, in some sense, you're you're able to, to a certain extent, bypass the need for genetic modification because the environment can be. Not yeah. bypass it. Let's say for certain things, you can already bypass it. No, and not even not even bypass it. It's just that we have the possibility to push what nature already has mm -hmm. to offer in yeah. a different way. I'll give you a quick example, um, like red red coloration in in lettuces. Mm -hmm. So in general, plants uh, can uh, synthesize a lot of photoprotective pigments, and again, uh, uh, when they have excess of light, um, and you can make a lettuce that is green turn red if you want to. <laughs> uh, and that's already quite nice. And we, I'm not even touching the genes. It's just uh, changing the environment so to trigger something in their physiology. And we yeah. do it. As, so what's what's that? Is it you have too much light or what's the... There are different ways to do it. So um, a lot of the research, for example, in light, uh, in vertical farming, is uh, playing with the spectra. And this is a topic that is actually very interesting because it's something that nobody else can do. We can, I mean, you have the sunlight and the sunlight has a fix, fixed spectra, you can change that. But in a vertical farm, you have the possibility to change the light spectra that you provide mm -hmm. to the plant. And you can change it in a way that you have always either the peaks of wavelength, that like you, can, you can change the, the, or you can customize the wavelength of, of, of light that you provide to the plants so that the energy is also efficiently used. Mm -hmm. And you can switch it in terms of percentages to trigger a specific uh, 
metabolic response. Hmm. But so I hadn't really appreciated this. So you can change the color for, first off by changing the light spectrum. I guess you could also, if you're looking at a, let's say broccoli or something, maybe you can grow a plant with a longer stem or with more leaves or yeah, and that's that doesn't really take too much effort to be honest uh, not even you didn't have to go that far if, uh, let's say basil yeah um you have different types of you can have basil in different formats so you can mm -hmm. sell it like as a plant as a little in, in a pot or in a plug or if you want to have cut if you want to have cut product in bundles you yeah. cannot you just if you just change the the density of uh, of the seeds that you use and the density of plants that you grow per square mm -hmm. meter, you already have elongation. You don't even have to go that far to the spectra. You can already just changing the amount of plants per area that you have. You get different morphologies and you can adjust it depending on the product. And so this is all built into the recipes that you're yes, building exactly. up. So, yeah. So those, those and we, we get, uh, when we get a request, we need to know for what type of, they give us a general architecture and then we can modify it. So basically mm -hmm. it's a nice example. If, or if you want to have cut product, you need to make sure that those products, because if they're going to be cut and sold in bundles, then you need to have somehow longer stems mm -hmm. and more leaves at the top than at the bottom. So you have to play with all the tricks. That you I can sort of see where the market is opening up for this sort of thing yeah. because you, you have, let's say, for example, the supermarket come in and say, not just we want basil but we want it that's going to fit this sort of a packaging and that's going to yeah. have this sort of a profile and characteristic that's really cool it's, it's not an aspect that i thought about even a little bit yeah i mean this is actually one of the the things that we try to to push forward it's this potential uh, mm. so um and and that brings diversity to your table without having uh yeah, in, in a very easy way. It's something that it can happen now. It's happening now. Do you think th this is probably way off in the future, but do you think, <laughs> okay, at the moment you have a, a setup where you're growing, I, I guess the, the goal is ultimately to grow at scale. Um, but do you think... We, you, yeah, we do grow at scale, yes. I mean, you, you already are, but the idea is that you want a system that you can put in place to feed whole cities, right? And so... The question is, do you think eventually we're going to have a system where you could, you know, I am I want to go shopping and I've decided that I like basil that has leaves of this size. Do you think there's going to be some sort of personalization that can be built into the system? Like I'm I'm a customer who I'm a restaurant, let's say, and I, I buy in bulk from you. And this is sort of the tweaks that I want to make. Is yeah, we do already have something like that in place. So um, there is a part of the catalog that is uh, called the culinary herbs. Mm -hmm. So there are specific herbs that really are kind of tailored for restaurants or for chefs. Mm -hmm. It already happens. Uh, I do, uh, of course, that's a very small market, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, it already happens. So you can, yeah. As uh, a chef, so we do have uh, in Berlin, for example, that's a, uh, one of the niches. So who knows, maybe in the future, individuals. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to, to, to think more than, uh, you know, uh, but this is again my, my personal perspective. I, I I don't think it's it's about. Uh, I mean, we can of course be it's, we can spoil people. You know, in the sense that we have the potential to 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 provide uh, little things. But I think it's more about having very nutritious food on your mm -hmm. table, mm -hmm. like to really improve the quality of life. Um, and 
having a way to control the environment in a way that you can use less resources. You can mm. modify a crop to have a certain uh, nutritional composition and bring it to your table in an affordable price is uh, a very fair system, mm. a fair production system. Let me, so I want to um, move the conversation sort of, um, so I, I want to sort of end on sort of future <laughs> future prospects. And I, I realize you, you may not, this might be, um, something that you're not able to say for sure of course (laughs) (laughs) but uh, so one thing is do you think if you see the way that uh, for example in farm works or or other companies work do you think in the future we're going to be moving towards a system where there are lots of small holdings for example you know back in the day people had their individual farms and industrialized agriculture sort of created a system where now we have these huge farms that are controlled by corporations. Do you, do you think in the future we're going to have um, you know large warehouses based uh, in the cities or are we going to have lots of small locations which will service you know restaurants in the area? What, what, what do you think the... Uh, you may not be able to say oh, this is all speculation, but what what do you think? Well, I, I do think. I mean, it's not far away from from our present time. You know, we do have farms located in in, in supermarkets, in restaurants mm-hmm. already. So it's already happening. People are more aware of where the food is coming from. Mm-hmm. So the, for me, the the ideal scenario would be more. Um, uh, yeah, we do we do have these production centers close to the cities. People are more aware of where the food is coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we will have definitely the possibility to make food production more sustainable in a way that we introduce technology into the food production system. Having an AI-controlled farm in every city that provides food for everyone in an affordable price, it's, it's the dream. And, and also um, having the farms connected with the infrastructure of the city Meaning that uh, we have, um, I don't know, solar panels or wind hmm. powering these this farms and get back into the system the, the food that is not being used, like um, mm-hmm. food waste can be also recirculated into the system. Having governments involved in uh, promoting in new generations the use of many different technologies towards food production. Hmm. That's, for me, kind of the dream. Do you think urban farming will eventually or vertical farming will eventually involve uh, animals or, or so we already spoke about bees and, and you said because of this your system is dynamic maybe this isn't very helpful but do, do you think eventually we'll have fish or uh, i guess there's already mushrooms right well um there are a couple of things already out there um in which you have fish produced in pots and that kind of is the source for um, um, for fertigation in, in plants that happens it happens already in the city um, I don't know if that will be a big part of it but I I know that it's already happening as well mm. um, with mushrooms it's actually a good uh, it's a good example because uh, it has a huge potential that hasn't been explored yet so uh, if you have a system in which you have um, mushroom production facility, mushrooms require a certain type of substrate, so you can actually use plant waste to to create mm-hmm. that substrate. 
and then have much production as well and the mush the mushrooms itself could have the potential if you have them tightly connected with your farm you could uh, use the co2 production of the mushrooms to trigger to, to to drive co2 into the plants but that requires of course a huge uh, investment in terms of infrastructure and so but in a futuristic scenario that would be that's uh, that's a possibility i think you could also use mushrooms to make packaging. You you still use plastic, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's in general uh, the vertical farming industry, and, and we, and in infra, we are we are committed to sustainability, mm. and that also includes using packaging materials that are sustainable. Mm-hmm. So we already when when we do develop a product, uh, we do try to find packaging materials that are more sustainable than plastic. It's also uh, not uh, a thing that the vertical farming industry can solve on its own. It has to be a whole commitment. We are part of the solution, but that also implies that, for example, retailers or yeah. uh, supermarkets, everyone is more conscious that, okay, we, we don't want to have, you really have a tool that can harvest by demand, then you don't need to require a lot of plastic in order to cover the crops if you try to just sell them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that still is a challenge because the logistic-wise, uh, companies are still in requiring the in the old ways. <laughs> so that will require a cultural change, of ideology, like a, a different change in, in the way we think about how we deliver food, also how we sell food. When I look in the supermarket, I often see lots of fruit and vegetable the, the vegetables that are wrapped in loads of plastic and and uh, so instinctively i sort of try to avoid as much as possible mm-hmm. um uh, those fruits but what do you do you know what the trade-off is like because obviously if you're using plastic that's bad but it also if you're using plastic which stops food from going from spoiling yeah so yeah. is the trade-off worth it do you know <laughs> depends on the product um and also it depends on how long do you want the product to be there so, um, I mean, there are things that are completely unnecessary. Yeah, if you see, for example, I don't know, the other day I saw like some avocados in plastic. I'm like, you don't need to put them in plastic. <laughs> you know, like going back to avocados. But um, let's say for other products like um, cut salad mixes, if you have a cut salad mix, plastic is still very uh, useful because it keeps them fresh. But you can choose a type of plastic, and even though the shelf life might not be the best, you can also put, for example, a modified atmosphere inside the package that takes mm-hmm. may take, puts a little bit longer. And even if it's not as optimal as using 100% plastic, if the client or if the, the, the retailer or the, the, the supermarket agrees to kind of go with it. So there are ways that you can negotiate to have it still the same amount of products uh, in, a, in, in the same frequency, um, with less plastic that that are available for the client, but it, it requires it becomes a question more beyond the material itself. It becomes a question of the supply chain. It becomes a question of operations inside a supermarket. Mm-hmm. So there there is a reason why it's easier to have them all wrapped in plastic because you can just you, you, it's easier just to manage. You just don't have to be careful. You can just put them in bulks in a box and then mm. leave them there. And you know there there is no question of sanitary issues or anything like that. So it 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 comes it becomes beyond the material. It comes more a uh, operations yeah, question. What are what are the research questions surrounding vertical farming that you find most interesting? You know, if you could work on any research problem at all, 
what's the sort of thing that would make you most excited? Well, I'm a biologist by training and a photosynthesis research until I, I joined Inform. So there is, there is one thing that I found very interesting and vertical farms have offered me the possibility to look at it, which is the relationships of plants inside a canopy. So what happens really at a canopy level? So how these interactions between leaves in a canopy level in regards to light, uh, CO2, humidity, and temperature will reflect into the biomass accumulation of the, pr- of the plant. What are the gradients that you can have when you have a very dense canopy? Uh, this is something that happens in nature as well, but it's really hard to investigate. And we do have the possibility to investigate it in, in vertical farms because we can have control of the environment. But also how we can really trick the environment in a very precise way to make the most out of a plant metabolism. Mm. So how do we really think about small gradients of CO2, small gradients of temperature? How do we change them? How we monitor them? How we can change them automatically to push the um, um, efficiency of CO2 fixation in a crop? Mm. That's very interesting. It's a, it sounds a little bit trivial, but it's not as trivial, and it requires a level of granularity that we never had before in agriculture or in biology. Mm. So really dialing down. Yeah, dialing. You, you can dial it to the minute. Mm. So how do you change the environment to the minute so that you can get the best out of a uh, of a plant? So you know what the entire life of that plant is going to look like. Yeah, basically. for example. <laughs> yeah, we really like. And, and we do have that. So we, 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 we're starting to develop something like that now. Um, and uh, introducing also machine learning algorithms, algorithms that kind of can identify how mm. bad or good the plant is growing and how we can tweak the environment mm. to, to keep them in range, let's say. It sounds a little bit like to keep mm. them in mind, but yeah, to keep them in range. Mm. Uh, but also how we can, for example, just reduce the resources. How many interactions in the canopy actually are telling you, okay, well, actually this crop doesn't really need that mm. much light. Mm. Like, and, then, and that translates into energy savings. Mm. So let me, let me finish off then uh, with a final question. What are you most excited about with the future of urban uh, farming? What, what, what makes you... Uh, happy for the future in this this field? What's the sort of thing that sort of really you find most um, most captivating about, about the area? The possibility of of, um, of combining uh, AI with uh, crop physiology. That's mm. for me the key. Being mm. able to really tweak the environment automatically um, in a way that we can just really have, we can have an ecosystem running on its own, basically. Mm. That's, that's very the future. And as, as uh, let's say, as, as a human, how we as, as, hum- as mankind, can we really use these resources in a good way? How can we really start thinking about resource use efficiency? in everything that we do, especially in food production. Mm. So it's, go- it's going to the interaction of one leaf with the CO2 at the light at its surface to how we can introduce ways to um, lower the footprint of a whole system and use alternative mm. use resources and alternatives 
alternative um, sources of energy to drive mm. food production? How do governments get involved? Mm. So on the AI side, sort of eventually, hopefully the system will be that good that you can really maybe the airflow over that leaf and maybe yeah. that. Not not that layer like this this little canopy like how, mm. and we are is not really far away, really. Mm. And on the other hand, the other like, other exciting part that I'm I'm not a geneticist, but I I like to be uh, because I'm a physiologist. But I I do think that physiology and genetics have a are a very key component. So I would like to see what other genetics or like the the need for having a, a new crops in these systems and how to explore this genetic variation opens up also the the door to have a new physiological variation mm. so if we decide if we define what are the interesting traits for having a stable crop in a vertical farm what are the physiological uh, um, um, components that come into place there what mm. else is there that is needs to be unraveled that we don't know mm. because we never had the chance to have control of the environment in such a way for food production as we do now and as a researcher that's that's amazing that's it's having a giant growth chamber for you to play with with real life like the real life data 24 7 mm. a lot of information that it needs to be unlocked and explored and used in a in a proper way and for the benefit of everyone for the benefit <laughs> for everyone yeah. well viviana <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for coming on the podcast thank you shane <laughs>